This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. My name is Eric. I hate those long introductions because now I have to live up to that expectation. Um, years ago, I used to be a youth pastor, and I tr- used to travel around and speak at these youth camps. And I would go to the camp, and they, you know, they treat me like Maddie does. Do you need anything? Can I get anything for you? Where's Maddie at? So you need, yeah. Can I get anything for you? And so I would go, yeah. Um, on the first night of camp, I need to be. I want to work in the lunch line. And they're like, what? Because they, you know, guest speakers get the green room and all the good stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I want to serve the kids food. And then, so I would go work the lunch line, and I would be mean. I'd be like the lunchroom lady, you know. <laughs> slap it, Joel, slap it, slap it, Joel, you know. And then uh, the, usually the youth pastor who was hosting the camp would go, how do you want me to introduce you? And I go, I want you to say that we had a phenomenal guest speaker going to be here this week, but he couldn't make it, so we grabbed the guy from the cafeteria. <laughs> And I actually had kids come up to me afterwards and go, you should really think about being a public speaker. You're good. Uh, see, I like to set the bar low so that I exceed the expectations. That's why I'm such a good husband is because we've set the bar really low and I've exceeded them. So I don't really like to speak at other churches because, honestly, I get nervous. I do. I get nervous coming here. I love my church. I love our church in Destin. And hey, you got all these guest speakers that are coming from some fabulous places to vacation. You maybe, you know, you, you planted an album, Marley, and you just made friends with all these places and cool resorts. My next friend lives in Breckenridge, you know. <laughs> I'm going to go vacation with all these pastor friends. Because a lot of people are coming to album, Marley, to vacation. Anyway, so, uh, so uh, I, I, I don't really, but I love this church, and I love your pastor and his wife, his family. I love Maddie. Um, we've done, we've fished together. I've spoke, this is my second time speaking here. They've come down to Destin for vacation, so I will speak. Uh, I will come here. I don't, I mean, I, this is the only really place I've spoken all year long uh, exp- besides our church, except one other place. I did a dedication a couple weeks ago and wore the same shirt. <laughs> like, I've only had this shirt twice. I've only worn the shirt twice. Once there, and they picked that picture, so now I'm wearing the same one. You're like, isn't that great? Does that, is that what he always wears? So I will preach at East Coast a lot. My pastor is Pastor Dan. I grew up in that church. I've only been in two churches my whole life, East Coast Christian Center. Those of you know Pastor Dan, uh, I've been, I was in that church for 17 years. I was the children's pastor and youth pastor. And then the church that we planted uh, 17 years ago, to, uh, Shoreline Church there in Destin. Those are the only two churches I've ever been in. And I used to work for Dan. I was a children's pastor and a youth pastor. And uh, I remember, um, d- d- y'all know Dan, right? He speaks, Dan's kind of... Um, He's a he's a type personality. He's pretty driven. He can actually be a difficult guy to work for. You know, he sounds really loving. He's mellowed a little in the years, but he's pretty intense. Okay, and I remember one time, uh, his one of his sons, his second to the youngest son, Jonathan, was in our junior high ministry or a middle school ministry, and he kept getting sent back into the Wednesday night service, the adult service, because he was being disruptive. Back when we used to have church on Wednesday nights, y'all remember that? Anybody been a Christian so long? You remember Wednesday night services? Yeah. And so uh, some of you are like Wednesday night too. Yes. 
And so he got sent like four times in a row to sit with the adults. And finally one Tuesday morning, Dan says to me, he goes, why is Jonathan always, you know, and I said, well, he's being disruptive and, and so they can't control him. And they said, how come no one's told me? And I said, because no one can talk to you about your children. And as that escaped my lips, I was like, I was like Rose on the Titanic. Come back, Jack, come back. And he blew up, man. But, it's, you know, he was the kind of guy that would blow up, but then you could talk about it later. So have you ever heard that, uh, that saying that in the heat of the moment, what, you end up saying the things that you don't mean? You ever heard that? I kind of disagree with that. I think in the heat of the moment, you say the things that you actually do mean. What's really in your heart is going to come out. When things intensify and the circumstances get tough and the heat is on and stressful and, and complicated, I really believe that what you believe about God, what you believe about other people, what you believe about yourself is going to come out. And sometimes when it comes out, it comes out through your lips, it seems irrational. In fact, I think the first place that I learned this was in marriage. Um, we've been married. Can, can you stand up, darling? This is my wife, darling. We've been married for 36 years. Wait, let them see you again, because I know there's a shock, because you're thinking, wow, you guys look like teenagers. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. That's because when we got married, it was the day after she turned 20, and I was just 23. So, so can we all just agree that's just too long, young to get married, married right? Um, I think there's two things you're never ready for, and that is marriage and kids, right? If someone says they're ready for marriage, they're not ready. And if someone says they're ready for kids, they're definitely not ready, right? I think when you say, I'm not ready, that's probably when you're ready. But I've learned some things. For one, I've learned there's three things that you never say in marriage. The first word is always. You never, you know, you never say always. Like, you always do this. You always, you always nag. You always bring up the past. You always, the second one is you never say never. You know, you never pick up your clothes. You never do this. You never do that. And they teach you that in premarital counseling. And the reason why they teach you that in premarital counseling is because marriage is about appreciating where you are in the moment, in the season that you're in, and not inflicting the past onto your spouse. Now, the last word, if you're taking notes, that you never use in marriage, especially if you're not married yet, you need to write this down, is fat. Never use the word fat, okay? <laughs> I didn't learn that one in premarital counseling. I do it now in premarital counseling. I wish someone, I learned that one on my own. So anyway, after about seven years of marriage, that's when we had a breakthrough. And I say we had a breakthrough, it was really I had a breakthrough. Because I thought everything was fine. And the reason why I thought that was because I thought everything was fine. Because I thought I knew women. I grew up with very strong women. I grew up with a single mom who was very strong. And I had two very strong uh, sisters. And so... Um, I thought I knew how women tick. I knew how women thought, okay? In fact, I would hear guys talking, and they're like, women are so difficult. Girls are so complicated. I'm like, you guys are amateurs. Girls are just easy. Girls are easy, man. You just don't get it. Now, the reason why we had a breakthrough was because we had read a book and attended a seminar by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. Anybody ever read that book or know about it? If you haven't gotten married, I encourage you to read it. Now, Dr. Cham Dr. Chapman's premise is he believes everybody has a love language, and the love language is how you feel love, how you express love. And so uh, he, the way you feel love or the way you feel loved is how you're going to express love. So you need to understand what those languages are. And his five love languages are quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, and touch. So Dr. Chapman says you have at least one, maybe two, maybe three, but you have two, at least two primary love languages. For, for example, my love language is touch, words of affirmation, and then touch me some more. Exactly in that order. That's how I like it, okay? So my mom's love language was acts of service, and my sister's love language was gifts. So I'm just thinking, you guys, you don't understand women. You're, are you serious? All you got to do is mow the lawn and give them gifts, and everything's good. 
So for seven years in our marriage, I'm thinking everything's great. So about seven years into our marriage, we went to lunch, and I could, we're sitting at a park, and we're eating lunch, and I could just kind of feel a chill in the air. Only husbands know what I'm talking about at that moment. I could kind of feel this chill, chill, chill that only married men know what I'm talking about. So I go, are you okay? And she goes, I'm fine. And I remember specifically saying, you got that right. You are fine, girl. <laughs> for some reason, that didn't go over well. Now, remember, I'm young, and I'm naive. So I think when a woman says she's fine, she actually means she's fine, right? But see, I, I didn't know that. So I'm like, yeah, cool. Everything's good. Like the last seven years. This is awesome. I love it. We kind of sat there eating our lunch in silence, and just in a moment, after a while, she just went, is it always going to be like this? Now, guys, can I talk to husbands for just a moment? If your wife ever asks you like an overtly uh, rhetorical question and then pauses like she wants you to answer, don't do it. It's a trap. It's a trick. And I didn't do it. I didn't answer the question. And then in a moment, it seemed like just like this moment where the light bulb, the light bulb went on. In a moment of clarity, I went back to that seminar that we'd taken on five love languages. And I kind of remember Darlene saying that her love language was quality time. I don't really remember because I wasn't paying attention. And so it hit me. That all this time I'd been like give it, mowing the lawn, doing acts of service, you know, and gifts and things like that, expressing love how I thought she needed to be, be ex, ex, the love expressed, and that wasn't it. And it was just like all this. It was like that poof moment where it just went off in my brain, and I said something, and it wasn't something I said that we husbands know how to do, where we know what they want to hear or the right thing to say, and we say it. It wasn't that. It was something that I truly believed in my heart. It just came out, it was like a, a clarity moment when she said, is it always going to be this way? And I said, only if I get to spend it with you. And I put my arms around her and hugged her like she was, I was never going to let her go. And she melted in my arms and we've never had an argument since. <laughs> I know I'm a pastor, I should be telling the truth, right? But see, it's in those moments when life is challenging, when life is difficult, when things intensify. And so for husbands, we don't even know when that is half the time. But when situations escalate, that what you really believe about God, what you really believe about people is going to come to the surface, whether it's good or bad. And it's in those times that when these actions or these words come to the surface of, that kind of dictate what you believe, just like what I said to Pastor Dam, sometimes you can be perceived as irrational. Sometimes you can be perceived when those words come to the surface and those actions come to the surface, when things don't make sense, they look illogical. You know, maybe some of you guys did some illogical things when you were, you were like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it, and you did stupid things. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up, right? We do those. In fact, Darlene did it when we were, <laughs> she did it, when we met the se on her senior year. Now, I was 21 years old when we met. And so we met like in February, and so she's about to graduate in May, and she already has a prom date. We started dating, and I'm not going to go to prom. For one, I'm not going to be the 21-year-old, you know, uh, Matthew McConaughey, hey, doing some high school chicks like dazed and confused, right? I'm not going to do that. Besides, when I was in high school, I kind of graduated from the school of rock where I was going to stick it to the man, and I didn't even go to prom when I was in high school, so I'm not going to go to her prom. So we had an agreement, of course, no, you can, date, you can go to prom with this guy. I'm not threatened. I, I saw him. I'm not threatened. So around 7 o'clock that night, we're sitting around our apartment, me and some friends just kind of partying a little bit or whatever, and there's a knock on the door, and I open it up, and it's Darlene in her prom dress. I said, what are you doing here? She goes, I just wanted to see you. I said, where's your date? He's out in the car. <laughs> okay, so he sat there and talked to us a few minutes. He was like, well, I better go. So they go off to prom. 
About 10 o'clock that night, we're there. She comes over again, me and my friends. I said, she goes, I just wanted to see you. I said, where's your date? He's out in the car. He's in my driveway in the car. You know, what do you want to do now after prom? Let's go see Eric, you know, and it's not over. I'm sleeping. Two o'clock in the morning, and I feel, Eric, wake up. Wake up. And I wake up, and it's Darlene. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sleeping. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? She goes, I just wanted to come see you. I said, where's your date? He's out in the car. See, that was a little irrational. Her obsession with me was a little bit irrational, wouldn't you say, Darlene? And that's kind of what I want to talk about today is the irrationality of God as we begin to unpack this idea that you guys are in this series about having a heart for the house. As, because I believe that if we want to understand how to have a heart for the house, we really got to start by unpacking how irrational God is. Because believe it or not, those irrational kind of things that happen with Dar- that Darlene exhibited, God exhibits those same things with us. And if we can begin to understand just how irrationally passionate he is for us, it will help us be passionate about the things of God, and especially his house. So I want to dive into a story that I think will help us discover exactly how passionate God is for us and how irrational his passion is for us, okay? And it's in John chapter 11. And in this story, John chapter 11, there are two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they have just sent Jesus a note because their brother is sick. And contained in this note is the truth about what they really believe about Jesus and about God. Because whatever you believe, that's what's going to come out. So we're going to start in John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. And here's what it says in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Bethany, if you go there today, is right outside the city of Jerusalem. So this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Mary and Martha are in the thick of it, are they not? I mean, it's heated to say the least because their little brother Lazarus is on death's doorstep. He could be passing into eternity at any moment. And we can assume that they have, they have exercised all other avenues to try to get him better, and, they have, and he's still not any better. So the only logical answer that they could come up with is they need a miracle. They need Jesus to come and save Lazarus. They need Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. So they come up with a logical plan. They write a note. They give the note to a runner. They say, go find Jesus. He has to be close by. Give him the note, and he will be compelled because of his love for Lazarus. He will be compelled to come and heal Lazarus. Now, what we're about to do is we're about to discover what Mary and Martha actually believe about Jesus and believe about God. When push comes to shove, when, when it's a matter of life and death, when the heat is on, what they truly believe is coming out of what their, their words and their actions. Now, keep in mind, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are the closest uh, people on earth to him as family, except for his original family, his, 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 his real family, okay? I mean, he spent... The, they, these are, they are close friends. They, he spends the second to the last week of his life exclusively with Mary, Martha, and Joseph. Joseph, I mean, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, sorry. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, do you ever read the Bible and kind of interpret it differently? Like you walk away and you read a verse and you, in your mind, you've interpreted it differently than what it really says? I mean, I do that all the time. Anybody? Especially when I preach and it doesn't say what I want it to say, then I make it interpret something else, especially when it comes to tithing or something like that. Um, just kidding. See, the, in our mind, we kind of read the note this way. When I walk away from this me- passage of scripture, in my mind, I kind of read it like this: Lord, the one that loves you, the Lord, the one that loves you, is sick. 
But it doesn't say that. Look what it says. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, the first thing that strikes me is the length of the note in itself. If you have one note to save someone's life, it, if I have one note, it's not going to be short. I mean, if I had one note to save Darlene's life, I'm going to list all of her. I'm going to pull out her resume. I'm going to list her prayer statistics, you know, how many hours she spends in prayer and devotion to the word and counseling people like Kevin, Pastor Kevin all the time. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going sp- to list all these things and go, God, she was a pastor's wife, which should be, that should amount for something. She planted churches. You know, there's, I'm going to list all of these things on why that she should get healed by God, right? But that's not what they do. They write, Lord, the one you love is sick. The end. That's it. See, here's what Mary and Martha believe. They believe that what will move God most is his love for Lazarus, not Lazarus' love for him. Now, this personally shocked me. Because I'm thinking, if I'm writing a note for, Mar- for Darlene, I'm going to prove all the reasons why she's worthy to be healed and how much she's devoted to him. Lord, you need to heal her. But see, what moves her, what moves Mary and Martha is not Lazarus' love for God or for Jesus, but Jesus' love for Lazarus. This shocked me, and it, pro- it caused me to personally investigate the focus of my relationship with God. Because I started to think, what is the focus of the gospel? Really, think about it. What is the focus of the gospel? Is, which is the good news of what God has done through, to us through his son Jesus. What is the focus of the gospel? Is it man loving God or is it God loving man? And I had to come to the obvious biblical conclusion that the essence, the true essence of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is overwhelmingly God's love for man. Now, here's a thought that could change your entire outlook on God and life. Guess what moves God the most? If you're in a word of faith church, they'd go, faith. Faith moves God the most. But when I look at this, I see it's God who moves God the most. God, think about it. John 3.16, the scripture that Tim Tebow wrote. We often, (laughs) we live our life like John 3.16 reads like this. For the world so loved God that he gave his only son. That's how we read. That's not what it reads, right? We, we, we kind of act like this life with God, is uh, this, the, the, the gospel has, is like this, you know, that God is in heaven and he's pacing his gold-laden streets because down on earth, on this dusty planet, our earth is a remnant of people and they're begging and cajoling and they're pleading, please, we love you so much. And he hears their passion and their love for him and they're like, please, please, could you please come? Could you please come down onto earth? We love you. We've got to have you. And God's like, I don't know. Should I go? I'm kind of busy. Okay, I'll go. That's not, what it, that's not the gospel, is it? Look what it says, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, the other part, the other disturbing thing about that is the word God. I mean, the word so. You know, the word so, that means that you, you could actually insert the word obsession in there. For God was so obsessed with the world that he gave his only son. In fact, I think it's fair to put obsession. I mean, think about it. Look at it from my point of view. From my point of view, Darlene was so obsessed with me, she came to my house three times with her prom date. That seems pretty obsessive, does it not? But that's how, God is obs- that's how much God is obsessed with the world, the world people and all the bad things in the world, the whole thing. He's so obsessed with the world that he sent his son, and it gets worse. 
Look at this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, I'm sorry, uh, you're going to give your son for a whoever? I mean, uh, you know, if I give you a gift, like if I give you a car, you better be driving that car when I see you, right? Because if I give you something, I'm giving you something with the expectation that you value it. And when I see you next, you better be wearing that necklace or driving that car or, you know, you better be whatever, that hat on your head, right? Because I'm giving it to you with the upset. Oh, yeah, you didn't like my gift? See if you get another one, right? God gave his only son. He was so obsessed with the world and everyone in the world, even bad people, he was so obsessed that he gave his son with this expectation or this of the whoever, just whoever. I'm like, maybe you should have got a few more guarantees, God. Maybe before you just give it to whoever's, because what kind of love is this? What kind of love does this just, you just give this love to anybody, to whoever wants it, whether they receive it or not. I don't really understand this kind of love. It's not in my context because it's not kind of a love that we kind of see on this earth. That you are so obsessed, it sounds a little bit irrational to me. It sounds a little bit of illogical. It sounds obsessive that you're so obsessed with bad people that you're willing to be. This can't be good, you know, because we have this term called groupies. You know what a groupie is? Anybody know what a groupie is? A groupie is, you know, a groupie is someone who's given their love to a band or to a singer or something like that. Someone that, that they're giving. The reason why it's bad to be a groupie is because you're giving love without any expectation that it's going to be received. There's no reciprocation. And so you spend your life in your 20s following a band around, right, Haley? And they, you get love that, you know, doesn't give back to you. It can get weird, right? So have you ever wanted to talk to God based on what you're reading on the Scripture and just go, God, um, we have a term down here called groupie, and um, I think you're kind of bordering on it a little bit. Um, it looks like you're obsessed with bad people. You do understand, Lord, that those bad people are always going to be bad. Um, I, you know, I'm only telling this because I don't want you to get hurt, but because I don't think they're ever going to acknowledge you. And, Lord, from what, uh, what I'm reading, I, I understand you have this little thing called foreknowledge. So you already know the ones that aren't going to receive you. So maybe you could scale it back a little bit and just give your son to those, because you so love the world, you give them to those who already believe or are going to believe. I'm just, I'm just saying. You know, somebody came up to me at a party one time and said, God doesn't make sense. I'm like, welcome to the party. Right? Well, since when has God ever made sense? I mean, that's what makes him God. He's a mystery, right? I mean, he even tells us. He even says, look, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, meaning that you're, you're never going to be able, you can't even begin to comprehend the way I think. You can't even begin to comprehend the actions, what they're inspired out of. His ways are irrational to us, but they make complete sense to him. The way he loves, the way he gives, the way he forgives makes complete sense to him. They're completely, irration- they're completely rational to him, but his ways are higher than our ways. So they're not going to make sense to us. They look completely irrational to us. His rationality is irrational to us. The way he loves people is irrational. The way he forgives is irrational. You don't think it's irrational? You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is like a commodity because there are people that spend their whole lifetime trying to earn forgiveness from their parents, their father, their mother, earn the forgiveness of their kids because what they had done to them uh, earlier on in life, earn the forgiveness of God himself. And there are people that will withhold that forgiveness because they realize how valuable it is to have forgiveness and they'll use it as a power play to withhold forgiveness from people. So here's God who has this commodity that people spend their whole life searching for, and he freely gives it to whoever. 
Whoever wants it, whoever's willing to receive it. Do you know how irrational that is? If you looked at forgiveness as a value, if you looked at love as something as a, a valuable commodity, how irrational and illogical that is. So you're in this series right now called Having a Heart for His House. Having a heart for his house doesn't just happen because of an excellent, skilled communicator like myself comes up and convinces you to have a heart for the house. That's like the person that goes, oh, don't be angry. Oh, okay, thanks. All that 10 years of, 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 of counseling and, and therapy I didn't have to pay for. All I needed to do was find you and tell me, don't be angry. What was I thinking, right? See, having a heart for the house begins when we just get a little, little glimpse of the passion, the obsession that God has with us, when we begin to understand just a little of the ridiculous links that God went through to show you his love. And when we get a glimpse of the irrational love, guess what? You can't help but respond. You can't help but have a heart for his house. You can't help but really do everything. You can't help but to give. Why? Because he gave irrationally. You can't help but serve. Why? Because he did the unthinkable and God put on a flesh and blood bodysuit and served us with his very life. And when that begins to permeate your thinking because it's invaded your heart, it begins to change your actions and what you do, people will begin to look at you the way they look at God. Not like God, but the way they look at God. That doesn't make sense. Why would you spend all your time serving at a church? Why would you spend your Sunday evening going to a leadership thing? Why would you come here at 6 o'clock in the morning to set up a church and tear it down in a movie theater? That's irrational. What do you mean Sunday's the best day of your week? And you do it all for people who probably won't even reciprocate. How irrational. Having a heart for the house starts with understanding just how irrational God is. Did you know, did you know that God loves bad people? Did you know that? Yes, Eric, I do. Oh, good. <laughs> Even bad people who stay bad, who never become good, God still loves them. Do you know that God still loves people in hell? Yeah, God even loves people in hell. Now, God didn't send them there. You might think, well, why are people there? Because they chose that over his love. Because love, what's love without a choice? Love always has to have a choice. If you don't have a choice, then you lose the definition of love. In fact, in our culture, forced love is how you go to jail. We call it abuse. And God is not abusive. He gives you a choice. And you can either acknowledge his obsession with you or you can ignore it. It's your choice. But that doesn't take away his obsession. You say, I, don't, I refuse to acknowledge his obsession with me. That doesn't matter. It's still there. See, this is all about God. It's not about us. It's not about, it's not about us obsessing over our love for God. Because and, 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 we get this out of order. We focus on the things that we do. We get obsessed, obsessed with our performance and our prayer and our, and our, and our, and our, and our uh, devotional time and our efforts and our quiet time. And we fail to see just how obsessed God is with us. Now, I want to end with this. And the reason why I say this is because in preaching school, they teach you that when you say, I want to end with this, 65% of your audience will re-engage if they aren't engaged, so I'm going to move on. So this is why I say this. It's abundantly clear that Mary and Martha got it. It's abundantly clear that it was about God's love for Lazarus, not Lazarus' love for him. It was about God's love, Jesus' love for Lazarus that moved him, not the love that they had for Jesus that moved him. So they send this note that says, Lord, the one that you love, not the one that loves you, the one that you love is sick. 
But the word that they use there is the word that we most often use when we use the word love. It's the word, it's the word that we use when we sing about songs about love in our culture and when you see it in movies in our culture and things like this. And it's the word phileo. And for those, it's a Greek word. There's, there was many different words for love. And for those of you familiar with this word, the original language, the context of the original language, this word phileo that Mary and Martha, that Mary and Martha use means earthly love. It means it's the love, it's like how we get married. It's, it's, it's best friends. It's love that's based on reciprocation. It's love that's based on that I love you and you love me. In other words, my love, you reciprocate that love. I love you because you love me first or because I love you and now you love me. And as long as I feel that love, we're gonna have, it's based on reciprocation. In fact, I do lots of weddings and I've never been at a wedding where the bride is being dragged down by her father and she's going, I don't wanna marry him. I don't wanna marry him. And the groom's going, yes, this is exactly what I want. You don't do that, right? Because you don't love someone who doesn't reciprocate it. That's called phileo love. That's how the world works. Some of you ghost someone who doesn't text you back in 30 seconds and go, he doesn't love me anymore, right? So they write this note. Mary and Martha write this note and they say to Jesus, look, the one that you love is sick. Oh, Mary and Martha, you, you think this is phileo. You think that God's love for you is phileo. That you think that the one you love because, you, because he loves you, you think that's what this is. I'm, t- I'm here to tell you, Mary, this isn't phileo. God doesn't phileo you. God has never phileoed you, and he will never phileo you. In fact, one time in the book of John, John says the reason why we love God is because he loved us first. And they use two, he uses two different words. We love God, phileo, because he agape me. And that's the word that Jesus used. That's the word that, that's the word, in, us, in essence, that what this is, is God is not phileo. God's love is from another realm. It's, 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 it's from another dimension. It's, God's love is, it's, comes from the core of who he is. In fact, God, is, God doesn't feel love. God doesn't express love because God is love. In fact, he cannot even deny being love because it would be in contrast to the context of his character. That's why he continues to obsess and be in love with people who will never reciprocate that love, people who have maybe even in hell, people who are going to continue to be bad because he cannot do otherwise. That's who he is, and that is called agape love, a love that needs no reciprocation. A love that is extended whether you receive it or not. It's unconditional, it's relentless, it's persistent, it's regressive, it's reckless, it doesn't take no for an answer. See, this is God. This is how God functions. God agapes every human being that has ever existed. God does not phileo humanity. God agapes humanity. I love God's creation I am all for the outdoors. I love being outdoors. I love living by the, sea, the, the gulf. I love living on the ocean, the gulf. We call it the sure way to be a tourist is to call it the ocean. It's the gulf where we live. I love the gulf. I love the waters. I love the rivers, the mountains. I love dolphins and whales, and I love fish, and I love dogs. I don't love cats, but I love creation, okay? But there is only one person, only one, um, there's only one species, I guess, lack of words, that is created in God's image. And think about this. In all of creation, of all the animals that he created, there was only one that was created in his image. And he created that animal, that person, us, human beings, as an as a, as a object of his relentless love and passion. 
God can't stop loving human beings because he cannot deny himself. How irrational is that? And here, this is the message for the church. This is the message that we have to get out to the church. That if you, if you are a bad person, or if you would consider yourself bad, or you are far from God, God is obsessed with you. He cannot help himself. So, as we wind down, I'm about to pray for you. And you're not going to like the prayer that I'm going to pray for you. Because I'm going to pray that as we leave here, and we get in our cars... That And we go about our week this week, and we start taking kids to school, and we go to work and all that. I'm going to pray that the preoccupation of your mind and your thoughts this week will not be of your love towards him. Oh, God, I love you so much. It won't be about your prayer life or what you can do. It won't even be about your weaknesses. But you would be, I want you to be so preoccupied with God's extraordinary, extensive, expansive, passionate, obsessive love for you. That his love never fails, it never quits. And as long as God exists, his love for you remains. And the reason why I want to pray this, in fact, I hope, I pray, that I get a text from you that goes, dang you, Eric. Why'd you pray that for me? Because all I could, couldn't stop thinking about was how much God loved me. And I was in the middle of a, 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 a staff meeting and I broke down and started crying in front of a bunch of mechanics. Oh, curse you, Eric. Here's the reason why I pray that. I pray that because our response to God's love should be irrational because his love for us is irrational. Our response to God's love, when we understand exactly how irrational what he did for us is, our response is going to be irrational. We won't be able to help it. You know, they told the apostles when they pulled them in in the book of Acts to quit preaching in the name of Jesus, and they said, we can't help but preach of the things that we've seen and heard. Wait a minute, Peter. Two months ago, you denied your Savior in front of a a teenage girl. And now two months later, you're saying you can't help it. What happened? Because I saw the obsessive links that God went to to show me his love. I saw him on a cross. And three days later, I had breakfast with him. And I realized how obsessed God was with me. So I can't help but preach what I've seen and heard. You want to have a heart for the house? Once you experience God's irrational love, you won't be able to, you won't be able to help but respond. Just imagine being so, so obsessed with God because he's obsessed with you that you become obsessed with everything about God, the local church. Because guess what? The church is now the expression of his illogical, irrational love for the earth. See, the first expression was his son, Jesus. God says, I'm going to do something so irrational. What's that? I'm going to put flesh on a body, me, my son. And I'm going to send him to the earth, not to be served, but to serve. That was, that was unheard of. In the gods of all the religions around them that, in that time, you served the gods. They toyed with you. And if you didn't please them, they, they, put, they took you out. We got a God that says, no, 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 I'm going to come and I'm going to serve so much so I'm going to serve that I'm going to give my life as a ransom. That's irrational and illogical. And that was his first expression of this irrational love. The second is his expression of his illogical love is the, what we call the body of Christ, the church. And now he sends his people out as an embodiment of that love. 
I want you to hand out forgiveness like water on a hot day. I want you to take that valuable commodity that people spend so much of their lives working towards, getting forgiveness from their parents. Giving, what they're trying to do is fill this hole that I've placed in them. And I have that forgiveness that I freely give them through my son to whoever takes it. And I need you, the church, to express that passion. Express that. You are the illogical, irresponsible, not irresponsible, irrational representation of my love on the earth. The people would look at you like they looked, like, like Darlene, they looked at Darlene's prom date, looked and thought, this girl's in bonkers in love with him. That's how they need to look at us. Because what we do is irrational because guess what? We're just modeling who our father is. You know what will happen? They'll see that and think, God, if this God is really real and he's that irrationally in love with me. How could I not respond? Because you did the same thing. Once you experience God's irrational love, you cannot help but respond. Would you bow your heads? Because I'm going to pray with. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to lie. That's always refreshing for a preacher to say, isn't it? But I'm definitely not going to lie in this prayer. I'm going to pray that a, a prayer that some of you. I hope it makes you uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever been into a place where suddenly God overwhelms you. You just get a sense of his un unconditional love for you. Maybe it's after something you messed up. Maybe it's a, you messed up in a relationship and you lost everything. Maybe it's something you did because of an addiction or an affair, porn. What I'm talking to men, I guess, right now, but women too. And you just, all of a sudden you sense that God, that's how much he loves you. And I'm praying that happened to you. I'm praying that you, if, especially if it's never happened, that you begin to understand this week, not your love towards him, not what you can do to please him, not how you can be better, but you just get overwhelming. Because guess what? All that will fall into place when you understand how passionately in love with you he is. He doesn't phileo you. He agapes you. Whether you return it or not, it will never fade. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd invade the hearts and minds of your people this week, especially the ones in this room. Lord, I don't know how you do it. I know you've done it to me before. That you would, that in your way, I'm not, your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I can't presume to tell you what to do, but I am praying this, that they would experience the love that you poured out for them on the cross. And that we, that our response, that our response would be we can't help but love. We can't help but speak. We can't help but, we can't help but help the poor. We can't help but, uh, take care of people. We can't help but teach kids. We can't help but give. We can't help but serve. We can't help but do it because of the response that we have to your love. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never kind of heard it this way. And I know I didn't present the gospel in its entirety of why Jesus had to die. But you've, maybe you've, you, you know, you've been living, you've never felt unconditional love in your life. Maybe your relationship with your parents or even a a, a mate has been conditional and you've never experienced the love that comes that's given to you freely just because of who you are. You can have that in a relationship with Jesus. You can understand why he had to die for you later. You can talk, stop, stop and talk to some people. They can get you in a study or whatever to learn that. But I'm here to tell you right now this morning, God sent me all the way to Florida, from Florida to tell you there's a conditional love that he has for you, an unconditional love that he has for you. 
that's not based on your performance or what you've ever done and, will never, and what you ever will do. There's nothing that you can do that can take away the love of God for you. And all you have to do is receive it. And you say something like this, God, I receive this unconditional love. I've never done anything in my life to deserve it. I don't. But for some reason, you love me because you created me. And you love me unconditionally, and I really want to experience that love. So I receive you right now. I receive the love that was expressed through Jesus on the cross by claiming that Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my Savior. I may not understand completely why you had to die for me, but by faith, I just step out and receive you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.